be sure to follow Send Me to Sleep on your preferred podcast player so you never miss an episode and a good night's rest. Good evening. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the world's sleepiest podcast. I'm your host, Andrew. I'm here to help calm your mind and send you into a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading chapters one and two of The Pavilion on the Links by Robert Louis Stevenson. Don't forget, you can listen to hundreds of other unreleased sleep stories on Send Me to Sleep Premium. Fall asleep to stories such as Sherlock Holmes, The Wizard of Oz, The War of the Worlds, and all of the remaining episodes of The Secret Garden. Just go to sendmetosleep.com slash premium and sign up today. Cancel any time. So, let your eyes fall heavy. And your breath soften. As we settle in. For a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter One Tells How I Camped in Graydon Sea Wood and Beheld a Light in the pavilion. I was a great solitary when I was young. I made it my pride to keep aloof and suffice for my own entertainment, and I may say that I had neither friends nor acquaintances until I met that friend who became my wife and the mother of my children. With one man only was I on private terms. This was R. Northmore, Esquire of Garden Easter, in Scotland. We had met at college, and though there was not much liking between us, nor even much intimacy, We were so nearly of a humour that we could associate with ease to both. Misanthropes we believed ourselves to be, but I have thought since that we were only sulky fellows. It was scarcely a companionship, but a coexistence in unsociability. Northmore's exceptional violence of temper made it no easy affair for him to keep the peace with anyone but me, and as he respected my silent ways and let me come and go as I pleased, I could tolerate his presence without concern. I think we called each other friends 
when Northmore took his degree, and I decided to leave the university without one. He invited me on a long visit to Garden Easter, and it was thus that I first became acquainted with the scene of my adventures. The mansion house of Garden stood in a bleak stretch of country, some three miles from the shore of the German Ocean. It was as large as a barrack, and as it had been built of a soft stone, liable to consume in the eager air of the seaside, it was damp and draughty within, and half ruinous without. It was impossible for two young men to lodge with comfort in such a dwelling, but there stood in the northern part of the estate, in a wilderness of links and blowing sand hills, and between a plantation and the sea, a small pavilion or belvedere of modern design, which was exactly suited to our wants, and in this hermitage, speaking little, reading much, and rarely associating except at meals. Northmore and I spent four temptuous winter months. I might have stayed longer, but one March night there sprang up between us a dispute which rendered my departure necessary. Northmore spoke hot. I remember, and I suppose I must have made some tart rejoinder. He leaped from his chair and grappled me. I had to fight, without exaggeration, for my life, and it was only with a great effort that I mastered him for he was near as strong in body as myself, and seemed filled with the devil. The next morning we met on our usual terms, but I judged it more delicate to withdraw, nor did he attempt to dissuade me. It was nine years before I revisited the neighbourhood. I travelled at that time with a little cart, a tent, and a cooking stove, tramping all day beside the wagon, and at night, whenever it was possible, gypsying in a cove of the hill, or by the side of a wood. I believe I visited in this manner. Most of the wild and desolate regions, both in England and Scotland, and, as I had neither friends nor relations, I was troubled with no correspondence, and had nothing in nature of headquarters, unless it was the office of my solicitors, from whom I drew my income 
twice a year. It was a life in which I delighted, and I fully thought to have grown old upon the march, and at last died in a ditch. It was my whole business to find desolate corners where I could camp without the fear of interruption, and hence, being in another part of the same shire, I bethought me suddenly of the pavilion on the links. No thoroughfare passed within three miles of it. The nearest town, and that was but a fisher village, was a distance of six or seven, for ten miles of length, and from a depth varying from three miles to half a mile, this belt of barren country lay along the sea. The beach, which was the natural approach, was full of quicksand. Indeed, I may say there is hardly a better place of concealment in the United Kingdom. I determined to pass a week in the seaward of Garden Easter, and making a long stage, reached it about sundown on a wild September day. The country, I have said, was mixed sand hill and links, links being a Scottish name for sand, which has ceased drifting and become more or less solidly covered with turf. The pavilion stood on an even space. A little behind it, the wood began in a hedge of elders, huddled together by the wind. In front, a few tumbled sand hills stood between it and the sea. An outcropping of rocks had formed a bastion for the sand, so that there was here a promontory in the coastline between two shallow bays, and just beyond the tides, the rock again cropped out and formed an islet of small dimensions but strikingly designed. The quicksand were of great extent at low water, and had an infamous reputation in the country. Close in shore, between the islet and the promontory, it was said that they would swallow a man in four minutes and a half, but there may have been little ground for this precision. The district was alive with rabbits and haunted by gulls which made a continual piping about the pavilion. On summer days the outlook was bright and even gladsome, but at sundown in September, with a high wind and a heavy surf rolling in along the links, 
the place told of nothing but dead mariners and sea disasters. A ship beating to windward on the horizon, and a truncheon of wreck half buried in the sand at my feet, completed the innuendo of the scene. The pavilion, it had been built by the last proprietor, Northmore's uncle, a silly and prodigal virtuoso, presented little signs of age. It was two stories in height, Italian in design, surrounded by a patch of garden in which nothing had prospered but a few coarse flowers, and looked, with its shuttered windows, not like a house that had been deserted, but like one that had never been tenanted by man. Northmore was plainly from home, whether, as usual, sulking in the cabin of his yacht, or in one of his fitful and extravagant appearances in the world of society, I had, of course, no means of guessing. The place had an air of solitude that daunted even a solitary like myself. The wind cried in the chimneys with a strange and wailing note, and it was with a sense of escape, as if it were going indoors, that I turned away, and, driving my cart before me, entered the skirts of the wood. The seawood of garden had been planted to shelter the cultivated fields behind, and check the encroachments of the blowing sand. As you advanced into it from coastward, elders were succeeded by another hardy shrub, but the timber was all stunted and bushy. It led a life of conflict. The trees were accustomed to swing there all night long in fierce winter tempests and even in early spring the leaves were already flying, and autumn was beginning in this exposed plantation. Inland the ground rose into a little hill, which, along with the islet, served as a sailing mark for seamen. When the hill was open of the islet to the north, vessels must bear well to the eastward to clear the garden ness and the garden bullers. In the lower ground, a streamlet ran among the trees, and, being dammed with dead leaves and clay of its own carrying, spread out every here and there and lay in stagnant pools. One or two ruined cottages were dotted about the wood, 
and according to Northmore, these were ecclesiastical foundations, and in their time had sheltered pious hermits. I found a den, or small hollow, where there was a spring of pure water, and there, clearing away the brambles, I pitched the tent and made a fire to cook my supper. My horse I picketed farther in the wood where there was a patch of sward. The banks of the den did not only conceal the light of my fire, but sheltered me from the wind, which was cold as well as high. The life I was leading made me both hardy and frugal. I never drank but water, and rarely ate anything more costly than oatmeal, and I require so little sleep that although I rose with the peep of day, I would often lie long awake in the dark or starry watches of the night. Thus, in Graydon Seawood, although I fell thankfully asleep by eight in the evening, I was awake again before eleven with a full possession of my faculties and no sense of drowsiness or fatigue. I rose and sat by the fire, watching the trees and clouds tumult tossing and fleeing overhead, and hearkening to the wind and the rollers along the shore, till at length, growing weary of inaction, I quitted the den and strolled towards the borders of the wood. A young moon, buried in mist, gave a faint illusion to my steps, and the light grew brighter as I walked forth into the links. At the same moment, the wind, smelling salt of the open ocean and carrying particles of sand, struck me with its full force, so that I had to bow my head. When I raised it again to look about me, I was aware of a light in the pavilion. It was not stationary, but passed from one window to another, as though someone were reviewing the different apartments with a lamp or candle. I watched it for some seconds in great surprise. When I had arrived in the afternoon, the house had been plainly deserted. Now it was plainly occupied. It was my first idea that a gang of thieves might have broken in and now be ransacking Northmore's cupboards, which were many and not ill-supplied. But what should bring thieves to Graydon Easter? And, again, 
all the shutters had been thrown open, and it would have been more in the character of such gentry to close them. I dismissed the notion, and fell back upon another. Northmore himself must have arrived, and was now airing and inspecting the pavilion. I have said that there was no real affection between this man and me, but had I loved him like a brother, I was then so much more in love with solitude that I should nonetheless have shunned his company. As it was, I turned and ran for it, and it was with genuine satisfaction that I found myself safely back beside the fire. I had escaped an acquaintance. I should have one more night in comfort. In the morning, I might either slip away before Northmore was abroad, or pay him a short visit as I choose. But when morning came, I thought the situation so diverting that I forgot my shyness. Northmore was at my mercy. I arranged a good practical jest, though I knew well that my neighbour was not the man to jest with in security, and, chuckling beforehand over its success, took my place among the elders at the edge of the wood, whence I could command the door of the pavilion. The shutters were all once more closed, which I remember thinking odd, and the house, with its white walls and green venetians, looked spruce and habitable in the morning light. Hour after hour passed, and still no sign of Northmore. I knew him for a sluggard in the morning. But, as it drew on towards noon, I lost my patience. To say the truth, I had promised myself to break my fast in the pavilion, and hunger began to prick me sharply. It was a pity to let the opportunity go by without some cause for mirth but the grosser appetite prevailed, and I relinquished my jest with regret, and sallied from the wood. The appearance of the house affected me, as I drew near, with disquietude. It seemed unchanged since last evening, and I had expected it. I scarce knew why, to wear some external signs of habitation. But no, the windows were all closely shuttered, the chimney breathed no smoke, and the front door itself was closely padlocked. 
Northmore therefore had entered by the back. This was natural, and indeed the necessary conclusion, and you may judge of my surprise when, on turning the house, I found the back door similarly secured. My mind at once reverted to the original theory of thieves, and I blamed myself sharply for my last night's inaction. I examined all the windows of the lower story, but none of them had been tampered with. I tried the padlocks, but they were both secure. It thus became a problem how the thieves, if thieves they were, had managed to enter the house. They must have gone, I reasoned, upon the roof of the outhouse where Northmore used to keep his photographic battery, and from thence, either by the window of the study or that of my old bedroom, completed their burglarious entry. I followed what I supposed was their example, and, getting on the roof, tried the shutters of each room. Both were secure, but I was not to be beaten, and, with a little force, one of them flew open, grazing, as it did so, the back of my hand. I remember I put the wound to my mouth and stood for perhaps half a minute licking it like a dog and mechanically gazing behind me over the waste links and the sea. And in that space of time, my eye made note of a large schooner yacht some miles to the northeast. Then I drew up the window and climbed in. I went over the house, and nothing can express my mystification. There was no sign of disorder, but, on the contrary, the rooms were unusually clean and pleasant. I found fires laid ready for lighting, three bedrooms prepared with a luxury quite foreign to Northmore's habits, and with water in the ewers and the beds turned down, a table set for three in the dining room, and an ample supply of cold meats, game, and vegetables on the pantry shelves. There were guests expected, that was plain. But why guests when Northmore hated society? And, above all, why was the house thus stealthily prepared at the dead of night? And why were the shutters closed and the doors padlocked? I effaced all traces of my visit and came forth from the window feeling sobered and concerned. The schooner yacht was still in the same place, 
and it flashed for a moment through my mind that this might be the Red Earl bringing the owner of the pavilion and his guests. But the vessel's head was set the other way. Chapter 2 Tells of the Nocturnal Landing from the Yacht I returned to the den to cook myself a meal, of which I stood in great need, as well as to care for my horse, which I somewhat had neglected in the morning. From time to time I went down to the edge of the wood, but there was no change in the pavilion and not a human creature was seen all day upon the links. The schooner in the offing was the one touch of life within my range of vision. She, apparently, with no set objection, stood off and on, or lay to, hour after hour. But as the evening deepened, she drew steadily nearer. I became more and more convinced that she carried Northmore and his friends, and that they would probably come ashore after dark, not only because that was of a piece with the secrecy of the preparations, but because the tide would not have flowed sufficiently before eleven to cover the great and flow and the other sea quags that fortified the shore against invaders. All day the wind had been going down, and the sea along with it, but there was a return towards sunset of the heavy weather of the day before. The night set in pitch black. The wind came off the sea in squalls, like the firing of a battery of cannon. Now and then there was a floor of rain, and the surf rolled heavier with the rising tide. I was down at the observatory among the elders when a light was run up to the masthead of the schooner and showed she was closer in than when I had last seen her by the dying daylight. I concluded that this must be a signal to Northmore's associates on shore and, stepping forth, into the links, looked around me for something in response. A small footpath ran along the margin of the wood and formed the most direct communication between the pavilion and the mansion house, and as I cast my eyes to that side, I saw a spark of light not a quarter of a mile away, and rapidly approaching. From its uneven course, it appeared to be the light 
of a lantern, carried by a person who followed the winding of the path, and was often staggered and taken aback by the more violent squalls. I concealed myself once more among the elders, and waited eagerly for the newcomer's advance. It proved to be a woman, and as she passed within half a rod of my ambush, I was able to recognize the features. The deaf and silent old dame who nursed Northmore in his childhood was his associate in this underhand affair. I followed her a little distance, taking advantage of the innumerable heights and hollows, concealed by the darkness, and favoured not only by the nurse's deafness, but by the uproar of the wind and the surf. She entered the pavilion, and, going at once to the upper story, opened and set a light in one of the windows that looked towards the sea. Immediately afterwards, the light at the schooner's masthead was run down and extinguished. Its purpose had been attained, and those on board were sure that they were expected. The old woman resumed her preparations, although the other shutters remained closed. I could see a glimmer going to and fro about the house, and a gush of sparks from one of the chimneys after another soon told me that the fires were being kindled. Northmore and his guests, I was now persuaded, would come ashore as soon as there was water on the flow. It was a wild night for boat service, and I felt some alarm mingle with my curiosity as I reflected on the danger of the landing. My old acquaintance, it was true, was the most eccentric of men, but the present eccentricity was both disquieting and lugubrious to consider. A variety of feelings thus led me towards the beach, where I lay flat on my face in a hollow within six feet of the track that led to the pavilion. Thence, I should have the satisfaction of recognising the arrivals, and, if they should prove to be acquaintances, greeting them as soon as they had landed. Sometime before eleven, while the tide was still dangerously low, a boat's lantern appeared close in shore and my attention being thus awakened, I could perceive another still, far to the seaward, violently tossed, and sometimes hidden by the billows. 
the weather, which was getting dirtier as the night went on, and the perilous situation of the yacht upon a lee shore had probably driven them to attempt a landing at the earliest possible moment. A little afterwards, four yachtsmen carrying a very heavy chest and guided by a fifth with a lantern passed close in front of me as I lay and were admitted to the pavilion by the nurse. They returned to the beach and passed me a second time with another chest, larger but apparently not so heavy as the first. A third time they made the transit, and on this occasion one of the yachtsmen carried a leather portmanteau, and the others a lady's trunk and carriage bag. My curiosity was sharply excited. If a woman were among the guests of Northmore, it would show a change in his habits and an apostasy from his pet theories of life, well calculated to fill me with surprise. When he and I dwelt together, the pavilion had been a temple of misogyny, and now one of the detested sects was to be installed under its roof. I remembered one or two particulars, a few notes of daintiness and almost of quokery which had struck me the day before as I surveyed the preparations in the house, their purpose now clear, and I thought myself dull not to have perceived it from the first. While I was thus reflecting, a second lantern drew near me from the beach. It was carried by a yachtsman who I had not yet seen, and who was conducting two other persons to the pavilion. These two persons were unquestionably the guests for whom the house was made ready, and, straining eye and ear, I set myself to watch them as they passed. One was an unusually tall man, in a travelling hat, slouched over his eyes, and a highland cape, closely buttoned and turned up so as to conceal his face. You could make out no more of him than that he was, as I have said, unusually tall, and walked feebly with a heavy stoop. By his side, and either clinging to him or giving him support, I could not make out which, was a young, tall, and slender figure of a woman. She was extremely pale, but in the light of the lantern her face was so mared by strong and changing shadows 
that she might equally have been as ugly as sin, or as beautiful as I afterwards found her to be. When they were just abreast of me, the girl made some remark which was drowned by the noise of the wind. Hush, said her companion, and there was something in the tone with which the word was uttered that thrilled and rather shook my spirits. It seemed to breathe from a bosom labouring under the deadliest terror, and I have heard another syllable so expressive, and I still hear it again when I am feverish at night and my mind runs upon old times. The man turned towards the girl as he spoke. I had a glimpse of much red beard, and a nose which seemed to have been broken in youth, and his light eyes seemed shining in his face with some strong and unpleasant emotion. But these two passed on, and were admitted in their turn to the pavilion. One by one, or in groups, the seamen returned to the beach. The wind brought me the sound of a rough voice crying, Show off! Then, after a pause, another lantern drew near. It was Northmore alone. My wife and I, a man and a woman, have often agreed to wonder how a person could be, at the same time, so handsome and so repulsive as Northmore. He had the appearance of a finished gentleman. His face bore every mark of intelligence and courage, but you had only to look at him, even in the most amiable moment, to see that he had the temper of a slaver captain. I never knew a character that was both explosive and revengeful to the same degree. He combined the vivacity of the South with the sustained and deadly hatreds of the North, and both traits were plainly written on his face, which was a sort of danger signal. In person he was tall, strong, and active, his hair and complexion very dark, his features handsomely designed, but spoiled by a menacing expression. At that moment he was somewhat paler by nature. He wore a heavy frown, and his lips worked, and he looked sharply around him as he walked, like a man besieged with apprehension. And yet I thought he had a look of triumph underlying all as though he had already done much and was near the end of an achievement. 
partly from a scruple of delicacy, which I from the pleasure of starting an acquaintance, I desired to make my presence known to him without delay. I got suddenly to my feet and stepped forward. Northmore, said I, I have never had so shocking a surprise in all my days. He leapt on me without a word. Something shone in his hand, and he struck for my heart with a dagger. At the same moment, I knocked him head over heels. Whether it was my quickness or his own uncertainty, I know not, but the blade only grazed my shoulder, while the hilt and his fist struck me violently on the mouth. I fled, but not far. I had often and often observed the capabilities of the sand hills for protracted ambush or stealthy advances and retreats, and, not ten yards from the scene of the scuffle, plumped down again upon the grass. The lantern had fallen and gone out, but what was my astonishment to see Northmore slip at a bound into the pavilion and hear him bar the door behind him with a clang of iron. He had not pursued me, he had run away. Northmore, whom I knew for the most impeccable and daring of men, had run away. I could scarcely believe my reason, and yet, in this strange business, where all was incredible, there was nothing to make a work about in an incredibility, more or less. For why was the pavilion secretly prepared? Why had Northmore landed with his guests at the dead of night, in a half-gale of wind, and with the flow scarce covered? Why had he sought to kill me? Had he not recognized my voice? I wondered, and, above all, how had he come to have a dagger ready in his hand? A dagger, or even a sharp knife, seemed out of keeping with the age in which we lived, and a gentleman landing from his yacht on the shore of his own estate, even although it was at night and with some mysterious circumstances, does not usually, as a matter of fact, walk thus prepared for deadly onslaught. The more I reflected, the further I felt at sea. I recapitulated the elements of mystery, counting them on my fingers. The pavilion secretly prepared for guests. The guests landed at the risk of their lives and to the imminent peril of the yacht. 
the guests, or at least one of them, in undisguised and seemingly causeless terror. Northmore with a naked weapon. Northmore stabbing his most intimate acquaintance at a word. Last, and not least strange, Northmore fleeing from the man whom he had sought to murder, and barricading himself like a hunted creature behind the door of the pavilion. Here were at least six separate causes for extreme surprise, each part and parcel with the others, and forming all together one consistent story. I felt almost ashamed to believe my own senses. And thus I stood, transfixed with wonder. I began to grow painfully conscious of the injuries I had received in the scuffle, sculped round among the sand hills, and, by a devious path, regained the shelter of the wood. On the way, the old nurse passed again within several yards of me, still carrying her lantern. On the return journey to the mansion house of Graydon, this made a seventh suspicious feature in the case. Northmore and his guests, it appeared, were to cook and do the cleaning for themselves while the old woman continued to inhabit the big, empty barrack among the policies. There must surely be great cause for secrecy when so many inconveniences were confronted to preserve it. So thinking, I made my way to the den. For greater security, I trod out the embers of the fire and lit my lantern to examine the wound upon my shoulder. It was a trifling hurt, although it bled somewhat freely, and I dressed it as well as I could, for its position made it difficult to reach, with some rag and cold water from the spring. While I was thus busied, I mentally declared war against Northmore and his mystery. I am not an angry man by nature, and I believe there was more curiosity than resentment in my heart. But war I certainly declared, and, by way of preparation, I got out my revolver, and, having drawn the charges, cleaned and reloaded it with scrupulous care. Next, I became preoccupied about my horse. It might break loose, or fall to neighing, and so betrayed my camp in the seawood. I determined to rid myself of its neighbourhood, and long before dawn I was leading it over the links in the direction of the fisher village. <laughs>